Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, you can go to biota.org slash podcast. Uh, this normally is recorded Friday night at 8 p.m. Pacific. Now, for the next two Fridays, uh, we won't be recording Biota Live. However, the Friday following, which I think is the 14th of March, from memory, uh, we will start up again with a topic that's to be decided, potentially a topic that will be coming in the show this evening, uh, potentially a topic that could be submitted by a listener. So if you want to get in contact, tom at com in order to, to submit a topic. Now, um, we've had some technical difficulties, and we currently have uh, five people on the line. Uh, we have Bruce Damer, who's in Canada. We have Justin Lyon, who's in the UK. We have Gerald, who's starting his first day of holiday with his family in Berlin currently. And we have Robert Rice, who was on the uh, last Bios Live as well. So, Bruce, to start the Grey Thumb news in terms of Grey Thumb stuff that's going to be happening in the future, on uh, Monday, March 3rd, you're going to be at Grey Thumb Boston at the Asgard Irish Pub at uh, 7 p.m. What are you going to be talking about, Bruce? Well, I'm going to be talking about a project that I'd like to start, which was inspired actually by the original Digital Burgess Conference in Canada, which was uh, over 10 years ago now. The Burgess Shale uh, is actually in the news again today because Desmond Collins, Collins, the paleontologist there, has published what he thinks is the reason why the Burgess Shale creatures are still in the still there. Um, but it, it's to create kind of a, a, a global effort, and I'm, I've sort of lived my life the last 15 years doing community leadership things, and I'm thinking that perhaps the artificial life community is bubbling up, uh, a new po uh, bubbling up of new possibilities, and perhaps if we can find a way to work together where our different engines and our different visualization systems can kind of talk to a common grid, almost like a semantic grid, we can create something bigger than the, than parts. Um, so, so I came up with this term, actually just sort of Googling around. I sort of thought this would be kind of like an evolution technologies grid, or maybe Evo grid for short. And I Googled the term Evo grid and, and found that I could get evogrid.org. So I got that, and then I was Googling that term again, and I found there was a fellow in Europe that had created a Python-based uh, library called EvoGrid uh, for doing artificial life simulations. And I thought, well, gee. <laughs> and I contacted him, and he said, oh, yes, this, is, this library is designed to be an element of a sort of an idea of a grid-based artificial life system. Would somebody be interested enough to use it? Because I built it, but I don't have any users yet. And so that, that's what I'm going to talk about at Great Thumb in Boston, just for about 10 minutes. Actually, I want to do a, a one-minute report on the London um, Great Thumb meeting of, on behalf of Justin. And rolling into that, as we have Justin on the line, Justin, far bigger than you ever expected. Uh, yes, it was. Um, we, I was expecting five people. We had 14 or 15. Um, we... The purpose of starting small was, you know, just to let word-of-mouth effects kick off. Uh, but evidently, the word-of-mouth already kicked off as a result of Grey Thumb Boston. We had, you know, uh, a very nice crowd, a very eclectic mix of, of 
hobbyist hackers. Uh, we had one hacker who has a day job for a big bank, but has spent the past year and a half, two years, uh, feverishly working on this kind of new A life and was uh, an avid listener of the podcasts on Biota as well as reading the Great Thumb blog. And he just read it on the blog and showed up. Uh, we also had a. The, so what's, I'm, I'm sorry, Justin, what's the distinction between a hobbyist and a hacker in your mind? Um, yeah, good, good question. Uh, I think I don't really have a good distinction. I just like the term hacker and I just like the term hobbyist (laughs) (laughs) and pure marketing. I think it's out when you, whenever you say that you have the hackers coming together, people who don't actually program always perk their ears up and get interested in it. Um, to me, it's just a nice way of, of saying someone who likes to program, you know, and is, and is good at it. Uh, hobbyist is also someone who, does this in my mind, but doesn't actually get paid for it yet. And I think the dream for everyone in the A Life community is to, you know, do what we're passionate about, but at the same time make it our living. You know, so that, for example, for this guy, you know, his his dream is to quit his day job, which he actually did, and he's now going to get a PhD. But his dream is to you know to quit his day job and make his living doing this, as opposed to writing you know web services for you know transferring money around on back end services or whatever it is they do at the bank. It's, it's an interesting theme in terms of quitting the day job, and I certainly have had this discussion candidly with Bruce in the past, but the legacy of artificial life development has always been that when people quit the day job, the artificial life development tends to die a relatively quick death. So I'm not necessarily sure whether the theme for Biota should be quitting the day job or perhaps maintaining the day job and maintaining the artificial life development in parallel. Um, certainly, and Bruce can list a series of names and a series of projects that have uh, disappeared off the map due to folks quitting the day job. So perhaps a, a cautionary <laughs> word with regards to people that want to quit the day job yeah, based on the strength of these biota podcasts. Fair enough. I mean, in terms of the Grey Thumb London, Bruce, um, talking about it, what is your thoughts around what we what would you would like to say? Just a real quick question. Mainly to say that it happened and that Grey Thumb is going global, and um, we'd like to do one in Silicon Valley, and maybe Gerald would want to do one in, you know, the Netherlands. Who knows? I mean, this this like the uh, Dorkbot community, which now has about 15, 20 locations, is a, is a copyable meme, and they should feel proud of what they started, and and encourage that other branches can start, and just start, start thinking about that it can be a bigger thing than than just the one or two. Yeah, I've got to admit I was thoroughly impressed with the the initial number of 14. I think the original Grace and Boston, I think probably after they started publicizing, they got, you know, 14 folks showing up. But uh, to start and just get 14 people turning up on the strength of, um, you know, a few flyers and a, a blog post, I thought was phenomenal. And probably a clear indication that there are in a number of locations, a number of folks that would be very receptive to getting together occasionally. And I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers, I don't have another thing that comes up, that I'll be in London in uh, the first couple of weeks of July and be able to be part of Great Thumb London if if it's possible to do another meeting then. um, I would be starting work on my PhD, which is going to be on the Eagle Grid. So uh, I'd be happy to, if that's possible, to be part of Great Thumb in July if there is a meeting then. Yeah, I've already scheduled, just just when you're over in Boston, you might want to mention this, the next Great Thumb is the 25th of March, 
and I've shifted it to eighteen hundred or six o'clock to eight o'clock p.m., um, which should increase numbers because we did it during the business hours because I because well just that's how it worked out. So eighteen hundred to twenty hundred, uh, so six o'clock to eight o'clock, Great Thumb, London, twenty fifth of March, same location. Okay, we'll do. Okay, so last podcast we discussed briefly 2012 with regards to Ray Kurzweil, and in listening to the podcast again, it occurred to me that the 2012 folk refer to Ray Kurzweil, but Ray Kurzweil may not actually refer to 2012. And this was uh, confirmed by a long time by a listener, Bob Mottram, who's also a, a fan of Kurzweil's work and Steve Grant's work and various other people. Uh, and he sent me a, a brief message that just corrected that... Uh, 2012 was uh, not connected with Ray Kurzweil's um, predictions. He predicts a date uh, in the mid-2040s. So, unfortunately, I think Kurzweil and the other 2012 folk um, share the same term, the idea of singularity. And my hope was this evening that we could get uh, Bruce and my friend Lorenzo on to discuss some of the 2012 movements and explain uh, the various kind of movements because Bob Mottram asked some specific questions about uh, numerology, cults, and various other things that lead to 2012. We did discuss this briefly uh, in Bruce's original Biota audio interview uh, where we t talked a little bit about Terence McKenna, 2012, and Ray Kurzweil, uh, which was probably the start of my confusion with regards to this. But in terms of folk not familiar with the movements, there are a wide variety of them, and they seem to move from um, fixed quantities in the universe, which will produce uh, either a day of wonder or a day of doom on 2012. Um, there's still questions with regards to which dates are going to be the exact ones. Some say, I think, December 21st, some say December 23rd. There has been um, a movement which I think McKenna was part of initially that talked about that the organisms uh, that we are surrounded by, the biology, the biota, was in fact uh, moving towards a, a 2012 date of, of novelty and wonder. And then it kind of emerged this idea that this was actually going to be a motivating factor, which is, I think, where Kurzweil picks up in some regard. So the, the interesting thing, um, particularly with uh, Justin's simulation, and I'd like to talk to him a little bit more about the specifics of his simulation design, but this date seems to pop out. Now, I think the most interesting 2012 movement, which I guess is the, the part that Kurzweil is um, associated with only with a later date, is in terms of motivating some kind of technical wonder. And what has always fascinated me, particularly with all these different kinds of 2012 movements, is that none of them are actively working towards the date in terms of creating or collaborating or, you know, doing stuff that we're trying to do with Biota, for example. Now, the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence, um, previously, I can't remember what I called it, I think the Singularist Institute, which is just the nature of these live radio shows. But anyway, the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence uh, puts the date a lot later, at about 2040, or mid-2040s, in fact. And it's based on that science fiction author that you quoted recently. Yeah, yeah and in fact, I can give you a whole bunch of background on this. Um, the last conversation, you know, Terrence McKenna definitely, I think, was the instigator of the 2012 stuff. He wrote about this thing called Time Wave Zero, and... Uh, years ago in the 90s, and the last conversation I had with him before he died about it, I said, Terrence, do you really believe in these kind of, you know, apocryphal dates? And he said, you know, don't take it literally, it's just a concept. 
Yeah. And, I think he moved towards that position in later life. You certainly hear through his lectures him moving away from the, the idea of the um, eschaton, the apocalypse, to something that yeah. was more a motivating factor and more easygoing. Now, what happened was Daniel Pinchbeck grabbed that, and it was all kind of keyed into the Mayan calendar. He created a book or two about it, and he's created a movement. And there was a Rolling Stone interview with him. I supplied a photograph for that interview, and uh, Daniel got pretty savaged uh, by the... He was actually not being very nice to the interviewer, which didn't help his case, but basically they said, you know, this guy now has a sell-by date on him. You know, nothing happens in 2012. He's out of out of work. Um, but um, you're absolutely right about um, that. The people who are the popularizers of these apocryphal dates don't tend to understand technology, or are not working on any aspect of technology that would make those dates actually come true. And that includes Ray, because Ray doesn't really do any technical work, or nor does he have a good understanding of the technology. So into into Justin here, in terms of you creating simulation in the late 90s with various um, components, which I'm sure you'll describe, that spat out a 2012 date. Can you talk in, in greater detail about that, Justin? Well, yeah, it was a system dynamic simulation, um, looking at the entire simulation science market. It's what precipitated my trips around the world to go interview different people to actually get not that I needed the data, but it was just, if you're familiar with system dynamics, you create the structure of the situation. The things I was tracking were different critical stocks, like number of case studies, the money made by different organizations, the growth of different companies, basically just capturing a lot of information and linking them together in a manner that made sense to me as the structure. Uh, the the date is, I, I you know, I wasn't trying to make any sort of, you know, prediction about the date, it just, it the simulation, several of the scenarios seem to to come to 2006, 2007 as effectively the tipping point where the growth uh, seemed to accelerate significantly. The growth had always been there doubling, but it was not really noticeable until 2006, 2007. And then 2012 was, you know, based on just looking at the graphs of the behavior over time, Look like that's when what I was what I termed the virtual world would emerge. So I'm not trying to make any sort of links to ancient Mayan prophecy. <laughs> it just it was completely serendipitous, and uh, I'm very, you know, being a scientist, you know, I'm a bit resistant or concerned about being linked to any sort of you know numerical cult issues. So that's why I kind of freaked out when I after I did the biota. And someone mentioned that, you know, this is a popular date. I went on the internet and immediately discovered that there's a gigantic pool of conspiracy (laughs) people out there thinking very bizarre things. And then I posted something on my blog that I showed Robert, but I pulled it down (laughs) because uh, there's a guy named David Icke over here in the United Kingdom. And I've had a couple of his disciples emailing me out of the blue with, you know, things about like reptilians from Alpha Draconis and stuff. So, you know, I've discovered as the more we do these podcasts, the, um, and talk and people hear what we're having to say, it goes two ways. One, on the one hand, people say that you know we're creating Skynet or, or, or the Terminator and we're going to kill all the humans with these new artificial life forms. So you know, I just have to be really careful with these sorts of things because there's a lot of people that are very 
uh, in, uninformed and just jump to conclusions, unfortunately. I mean, certainly I've jammed with John Klein with regards to the kind of funding, the kind of motivation and what we really should be uh, looking for in terms of the, the friends of uh, artificial life development. Um, and I go from the, the wildly anarchistic, which I guess was in some regard part of the Terence McKenna narrative, that if you can use a date to motivate people to do stuff, then it's probably going to be a very interesting date in some regard. That's a if, good idea. But if you're not, if, if people are just, as you say, saying that the Martians are going to come down then or the computers are going to take over or all these kind of things and they're not actively participating in terms of assisting the Martians taking over or assisting the computers to take over, then it's, you know, it seems to me to be relatively meaningless. So I, I don't know, I, I guess my views tend to ebb and flow um, in this regard, which is why it's wonderful to have uh, Bruce on the call as a kind of primary connector with Terence McKenna, who, um, you know, as, as Bruce said, popularised at least some of the mythology associated with this date. I, I think, to be perfectly clear, the Bioter movement has nothing to do with any of these movements, including the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Um, we're, I, I believe, anyway, we're all completely independent uh, from these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I would like to say, like, making a prediction that attaches a date is... Uh, is pretty far-fetched, uh, in, you know, in the first place. Uh, I listened to a, a, a really interesting talk uh, recently on the seminars about long-term thinking, and uh, he was talking about prediction, and he said, we generally make far too ambitious predictions for things on the short term and uh, far too humble predictions on the longer term. Usually things surprise us on the longer term. Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole, let me just, I mean, with system dynamics, I mean, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the simulation approach of system dynamics, but it's been, it, there was a famous book called The Limits to Growth, which came out in the 70s, that was based on a system dynamics model of the world, which immediately caused a bunch of econometrics to try to lynch poor Jay Forrester from MIT, saying that it was, you know, it was a huge, almost, almost a religious debate between the econometrics people, which used, you know, regression analysis to look at short-term predictions, whereas simulation, as as we as system dynamicists approach it, it's more of providing foresight. So that's why I say, you know, it looked like around 2012 in several of the scenarios I ran that uh, you know, something was happening, which I just termed a virtual world. So I prefer to use the term foresight is what simulations provide rather than prediction. But there's something I wanted to bring up that came out of Greytham London about Gerald's work that I wanted to ask him about, if that's okay, Tom? Certainly. When I showed the video, um, so there's a 10-minute video that you have where the creatures are evolving and you have a very nice voiceover. So I just played it with the uh -huh. voiceover and everything. And what happened was... Um, we had we had a couple people there that are completely just corporate types. One of them said, you know, you mentioned that it looks beautiful, but I think it looks creepy. And I thought that that was fascinating because I was when I was talking to these these producers and stuff. You know, some people when they look at this and it looks because it looks very lifelike the way the things are moving. It's a, it's a compliment. Absolutely, that's what I find fascinating is is the mental models that people have. Whereas for me, when I saw that stuff and I saw the lifelike movement of it, you know, comparing that to say like, you know, some of the standard you know, jerky movements of some avatars in, in, in different um, virtual worlds. And you see this very organic looking thing kind of crawling along um, a very, you know, you know, very straightforward environment. And that to me was very compelling. 
But I think it's funny that on the flip side, people, some people think it's creepy, and that goes to this issue of what are we creating with these artificial lives, and are we creating Frankenstein, and are we, you know, toying with the mechanisms of reality? And it's the same things that like Craig Ventor gets, but we're also getting in this in a, in silica artificial life. And how do you respond to that, Gerald, when when people say that to you and say that you're creating the Terminator or you're creating some sort of thing life form that's going to take us over? Well, yeah, like the first uh, the first thing I say is exactly what Bruce said. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And and the second thing is, well, uh, think about it in a way. I mean, the the creatures that I've made, uh, they don't have brains, but they they lumber along quite, uh, you know, realistically in a in a in a physics that's sufficiently close to ours that it that it's convincing. But they don't have any brains, so so they are kind of creepy. They're zombies. If I, if I could uh, just jump in here for a second, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the uncanny valley. Uh, research where um, they talk about, you know, when you look at avatars or robots or whatever, there's a particular, it's kind of like a, it's a curve that kind of goes up and then drops sharply into the valley and kind of comes back up, where there's a particular uh, point in trying to uh, mimic something that's human or, or realistically humanoid, where people go from, oh, you know, oh, that's cute or oh, that's realistic, to suddenly they feel this very strong sense of um, revulsion if it becomes a little too lifelike. Um, but still has that, you know, fake or plasticky sort of feel to it. And then, you know, if you keep following things and make things uh, a little um, too, too exaggerated, then um, the, the curve kind of goes back up to that, that feeling of comfortability. Um, and I think what may have happened uh, here in this particular case is that the uh, you know, little virtual life forms might have gotten to the point where they were in that comfortably realistic zone, but when you look at what they're emulating, you know, you could say, well, you know, maybe, uh, you know, smaller bugs or, you know, very basic creatures, that might have spawned off a whole different set of psychological uh, responses. So it, the, the movement, you know, may have actually been just in that right spot, but the shape and the form may have been a little too uh, realistic and, and made the, you know, the corporate types a little, um, you know, itchy. But at the same time, um, I think that, you know, there's something to be said there for... Um, uh, you know, it, we, that, we don't necessarily have that response for us because maybe we're we're used to seeing a lot of avatars or you know virtual life or you know creatures or whatever in different video games. So maybe uh, there's also something to be said for becoming accustomed or familiarized. You could also call it getting desensitized because in in a way yeah. I'm I'm still in shock from the very first time I saw it because it it, it was just it blew me away when I first saw it. So you kind of get used to it, but the very first time, it, it sort of looked creepy to me, too, because, you know, nobody ever seen one before, and I just uh, turned on the computer and ran the animation. I thought, holy crap. And I think, Justin, you said about halfway through the video was at the point where they thought that the creatures were looking creepy. Is, is that right? Did I? It, it was when there's one of the creatures that looks a bit like a spider. You, you see, my thought is, and I think, I mean, certainly my own experience with Overlape, and this comes up frequently, but it also came up at the start, this whole Frankenstein creepiness, there's something about motivation behind that. If you had told a story, perhaps, where you said, we, we you know, we put little dots on spiders or on a cat or on something and filmed it and then reconstructed the movement based on that, 
maybe that would be slightly less creepy than the story of this coming in some regard from the ether through genetic algorithm experiments. Oh, that's it. Do you think that the motivation behind it may have actually caused the creepiness in some regard? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if I was to tell people that we just motion capture, people just go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But no, the whole idea, like, of... I mean, I've been watching Gerald's stuff now, and also Bruce's videos and Jeffrey's stuff I've been playing with, and your stuff too, Tom. You can imagine, if you combine Gerald's work with, say, Bruce, you have some examples of, of a simulation where you used um, agent-based models. This was looking through the, the lunar module, the humans walking through the lunar... I think it was, no, it was on Mars, maybe, Life on Mars. And, yes. And you linked it to, uh, I believe it's the ABM engine Brahms, which allows you to um, script it, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the ones I showed of your stuff. But I was thinking to myself, God, how amazing would it be if you could have you know, a virtual world where like, you've got a little squirrel, and that little squirrel, and I was talking to Robert about this cause, just because I thought it was, it was a, a simple example. The squirrel kind of runs around and evolves movement based on Gerald's work. And so it also may be like, you know, and, but it, it, instead of being kind of scripted using these very basic rules of agent-based modeling, but actually have it evolve. Well, you see where I can go with it with the, in fact, Justin, one of the projects I'd like to do for the Evo Grid, um, as the listeners might know, I've worked for NASA for eight years, and the recent project we did for NASA headquarters was to do a design for a human mission to an asteroid. But it turns out that the the contact and docking of the human spacecraft is, is tricky, but actually putting robotics on the surface of an asteroid with very low gravity and having them know how to walk uh, or it may be a target for an Abiota Eagle Grid artificial life type simulation exercise where we create a simulated asteroid and we use genetic algorithms and, and evolve all kinds of low gravity walkers. Is that the is that you have a video of the of humans landing on the near earth object. Is that similar? That's yeah, that this would be a work uh, that would be derived out of that work and and it's a need, and I could definitely interest uh, NASA in that. I'm not sure about funding. I, I write a lot of grants for the federal government, but it's something that uh, NASA's going to have to solve uh, in, if they're going to do neuroscientific robotic missions that are surface. Well, the, what about that smart bot that you've got in uh, one of your videos? Do you have a smart bot? Which yeah, the SuperBot is, is um, from the Polymorphic Robotics Laboratory at University of Southern California. And what's fascinating is it's biologically inspired robotics. The individual segments come together, uh, and, and there's no central processor. And there are often spider shapes or other various insect shapes. And they will come together, they'll link themselves up, and they'll start to move and achieve, achieve objectives. And uh, what is that? Um, I think the professor there called it uh, not digital DNA, but but something else. And they, it's, it's a fascinating technology. We did some work for them about three years ago. Why but would it, it? It's some kind of. Go ahead. Why would it not make sense, or would it make sense to have Gerald stuff? I mean, I don't. How do they power these? I mean, like think of the. How does this thing self-organize into? And, and and how does it move? Could you use this almost like I hate to use the term like, but almost like an operating system for these smart bots or super bots? I mean, Gerald's work could potentially be uh, a way of of governing some of the behavior of autonomous robots. It really could. It really could. And in fact, one of their new directions is right now they started with these single hinged segments, 
uh, that have their own batteries, and once they once they connect, they wireless they communicate. Once they find each other and they connect, and there's an overall objective, which may be to move something from A to B, and then they'll 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 there's a kind of a handshake that goes on, and they kind of just determine what structure to form, and then they start to create a platform for lifting something. And it's all, if you, if you Google superbots, or you, University of Southern California superbots, or polymorphic robotics laboratory, you'll find great videos of isi.edu slash robot slash superbot slash movies, and there's all these movies there. And, and it's a great it's a great thing, and maybe Harold's work is applicable to this. It kind of makes makes a lot of sense. Well, actually, uh, if I might add something, the, um, the the work I'm doing right now on Tentegrity might be uh, especially applicable because uh, there's a, a minimalism, uh, minimalism to it. When you when you play around with them, you sort of get the idea that this is how you should build space structures because it involves as little matter as possible, and you can make very large, very solid uh, structures as a result. Yeah. I think space applications are are a frontier for all this work and. That's why I went to do work for NASA for eight years because I sort of instinctively thought that the biota mission had a place there and that there may be funding uh, for this and there also are industrial applications for this, but that NASA was broad thinking enough to see the value in this. Hmm. Okay. And Tom, very uh, just um, I think that's Gerald and, and Bruce, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I would love to... Um, Kind of explore this in more detail, and and think about ways we could get you know funding either from NASA or other uh, association. I mean, there's a huge effort in the private space industry. I mean, I could imagine having a very nice conversation if I could ever find the man with Sir Richard Branson, uh, with his Virgin Space or whatever it's called now. Um, uh, he might be very interested. I mean, it might be a little bit more accelerating. If you ever read science fiction like Robert Heinlein, they always said it would be the commercial entities that actually catalyzed the explosion of space exploration. So maybe that, you know, he could be an assistance to us. I think Bruce has a connection with Virgin Space. You do? Yeah, you might. We're part of a team in the fall for the construction of the spaceport in New Mexico uh, with the architects. Um, and I can tell you that right now the priorities of that group are extremely set in there to get a working spacecraft and get ground broken in the facility and get certification and they're on an incredibly tight budget restriction and timeline and there's a lot of risk factors haven't been addressed and it's tough. It's a real tough slog and I, I think that none of the people on the team would be interested in any kind of R and D beyond what will roll out of Bert Rutan's hangar in a year or so. Oh yeah, there's no way I think you could be part of that project now. This would be more like getting like you know, the visionary of a Branson to say, "Hey, this is nothing to do with my my plan to launch the commercial applications." But we'd have to think about you know what might be the commercial implications of this. I you know mining. I don't know. Um, the history of Branson seems to be more as a pragmatist. I think Paul Allen is probably in in terms of the you know the billionaires with the vision. I think Paul Allen may be a better fit with Vulcan. Yeah, and then these, I mean, I know Bruce has another connection with Paul Allen. What's your sense of Paul Allen in terms of this kind of funding? Well, I did, I supported, a, believe it or not, both my wife and I have done projects with Paul Allen. I supported a 
they constructed a museum on the history of the microcomputer in New Mexico. It was opened about a year and a half ago, and I provide a lot of support for that. And I can tell you, when he gets his mind behind something that is visionary, he'll support it. Um, and in some cases, if it's a commercial venture, uh, then it's another part of Vulcan. Uh, but if it's a nonprofit venture, um, it, it, the support tends to be very good, but it has to be something truly interesting. I would suggest that it's better to have him interested in something in a purely research or beneficial effort rather than a business effort, because his track record in terms of, of spinning businesses out isn't, isn't as good as, as his museum projects, for example, well, yeah, and or, or fun, funding for the Allen Telescope Array, yeah. which wasn't a commercial venture. Well, I also think Jeffrey probably has a lot of opinions about his experience with VCs, and I've worked with VCs also and have my own personal opinions. And, and Paul's, when you get over into his commercial side, he's going to treat it as a standard VC. He's going to have team members that are going to be evaluating it and taking control. This you know, reduces, I think, more of the chaotic comments approach, like you've got with digital space, um, might be more interesting. Yeah, possibly. What about? Can you explain the, how the cognition aspect of Noble Ape works? When I came to the Noble Ape simulation, I was in my second year of um, philosophy at university and also studying physics in the same, at the same time. And my background with regards to simulation had been on older computers, particularly Agar simulation. And the um, mathematical effects that I could see in these Agar simulations seemed to represent quite abstract emotions. Um, the two that I focused on in particular was fear, which is instantaneous fear, and this idea of desire, which is something in the future. And I worked on two uh, multi-dimensional, three-dimensional in the case of Noble Ape, well, four if you include time, um, algorithms that would capture this in the cognitive simulation. So firstly, the fear is very reactive. Um, if they're startled, if there are things that occur around them uh, which are not familiar to them or perturb the familiarness of the environment, then this is something that will kick off fear. Uh, and desire is a more long-term um, component. It's very difficult to describe these uh, things in anything more than these very abstract senses. What you can then do is look how uh, look at how vision and other senses are mapped onto the cognitive simulation. So early on in the simulation, I wrote um, quite a few treaties, some of which appear in the original manual and some of which don't, uh, in terms of whether three-dimensional vision would be necessary or whether two-dimensional or even effectively one-dimensional vision would be necessary for the noble apes and how that would map back into the cognitive simulation. In terms of a, an abstract idea, the simulation as it currently operates is relatively independent from the cognitive simulation. Uh, I wanted to maintain the stability of the simulation so people that saw the apes moving around uh, had a you know, relatively immediate sense of what they were doing. So the brain is currently uh, passive. However, through ape script, you can uh, write points of interrogation into the brain that will motivate movement. Um, Pedro Ferreira, who was on the open source, uh, is open source good for artificial life, 
uh, wrote his own version of the brain algorithm and played with that. And I know of about a dozen or so other folks that have written eight script in order to play with the cognitive simulation. But that's the kind of three-minute summary. I can go into greater detail if you want, but I'm not sure without the ability to project three-dimensional mathematics and do test cases, it'll be particularly productive in this audio sense. Do you have any immediate questions, Justin? Where's the best place to go to look? I mean, I've been going through the manual and uh, and even through some of the code and stuff, which is very, very good, um, like way beyond my skill set in some respects. Uh, I just think, I mean, it, what prompted this, this question was Gerald's comments in one of his videos about wanting a brain and then looking at the cognition simulation of your apes. And I do think that once we layer in some of the 3D aspects, I know it's the visualization right now, is is intentionally designed to be, you know, two uh, D simple. But I think once you add in like the actual three D stuff, it'll really resonate with people. Oh, I, I agree. In fact, I have a number of users who give me that feedback frequently. I think the difficulty currently is just in the time involved in either growing apes, rendering apes, or um, you know, establishing a 3D environment that is as haptically intuitive as I want currently. The problem that I found up until now, which I've had discussions with Bruce both on this podcast and, and offline, with regards to the difficulty in uh, rendering a simulation environment to the resolution that I'd like to do with Noble Ape. The difficulty is really time, uh, energy, um, and the, you know, the, the, the means of an individual versus the means of, you know, 30 million and uh, 100 developers, so to speak. However, as I said to you when you asked me probably three or four podcasts ago, when I started developing Noble Ape, I had a very keen vision of what I wanted it to look like. And technically, we're still not quite there in terms of the 3D realization. However, I'm very interested in working with people that would like to create a 3D realization of the Noble Ape environment, the Noble Apes and the, the CSV lines, the predatorial cats. I still have line drawings and, and quite a bit of line art that I constructed early on in the simulation. And as I said to Gerald in one of our recorded chats, Early on, I believed that there would be full 3D representations and energy usage and muscles and all this kind of stuff on both the Noble Apes and the CSV lands and probably even the birds and fish and things like that that inhabited the Noble Ape simulation. However, I found very quickly that the processing wasn't up to that and really it, it wasn't a, a productive simulation at that time. We're almost getting there now, however. Question for you. Did, did you create the... Um like the, the, the apes and the fierce spear lines and, and the weather simulation and the cognitive said, did you do that all in seven days? Uh, I, I believe I registered somewhere through there, but uh, <laughs> no, sadly it wasn't seven days. Well, as long it's as each only. day is a thousand years, or is it a million years? <laughs> each day certainly feels like a thousand years, so maybe that part of the story is accurate. But I do, I do make a number of jokes in that regard in Dick Gordon's book. Good reason for, uh, for folks to contribute to Dick Gordon's book, because there are a few Noble Ape related jokes in that regard. Yeah, well, in terms of visualization, what you, had, you said, is this, a, I mean, it's all right at the conversation, because why not use like the digital space? I mean, they've, digital spaces has that whole 3D, the, you know, they're using Ogre 3D, and they've got a whole platform for visualization, and not realistic enough. Or what about using. Let me, let me describe this to you, because I think through the name of your company, you may come to it through a similar angle. When I started developing Noble Ape, I was working for a consulting firm, a search engine company actually. Uh, they were developing a commercial search engine at the time. 
So I would go for that job and then I would cycle home and it was probably about an hour's cycle and halfway between the job and home was a large discount DVD store. And I would go in there and pick out Vietnam War films and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and things like that because I wanted to capture the fear element. I wanted to capture the aesthetic of the fear. I wanted to capture the jungle. I had really high hopes with regards to the visualization component of Noble Ape and creating all that early on. And if you read some of the early articles that are on the Noble Ape site, you'll see me making reference to this because I had high hopes that I would be able to actually create that level of visualization just um, algorithmically. And this was a large part of the initial development was actually to create a graphics engine that would be as good as what I wanted to see. Now, the concerns that I've had with digital space and with regards to other 3D environments, particularly ogre-based 3D environments, is they're not quite at the level of rendering where, um, for example, grass and um, trees and these kind of things that I see within my own imagination of the noble ape environment, I don't have that currently. Even in top-of-the-line games, the, the current engine, that's the Cryogen, is it called Cryogen? Uh, yeah. Crytek. Yeah, Crytek engine. Crytek. That has some elements of what I saw back when I started developing Noble 8, but it's still not quite there um, in terms of some of the components and certainly in terms of the low-end computation components. Now, in 1999-2000 time frame, I toured a lot of VR installations and what occurred to me was that the silicon graphics machines they were using from the mid-90s were represented in the contemporary iMac at the time that Apple was producing in terms of the OpenGL technology being pretty well one-to-one -one for graphics representation. So my hope was always that graphics would continue to move in that direction in terms of the same kind of time frame. However, I haven't seen that in the bottom end and, and even the mid-range market with regards to graphics. Um, so is, is it more of a question of photorealism or more more detail? I, I think you can get emotion without photorealism. My interest is actually creating uh, an emotional impact. And this is, in some regard, how perhaps my development of Nova Lake is different to other artificial life developers because I had a very strong vision, which comes through the original manuals, in what I wanted to see with the Nova Lake simulation as it moved into that graphics. And this was in part to do with all the, you know, all the line art and all the musculature and working out how many kilojoules a small, you know, bird would actually be as the apes and cats consumed it and working out all the mathematics associated with this. It is an imaginary vision in some regard. And the problem that I have with contemporary graphics is it's still not there. Now, the question always is, is how far away is it? Is it attainable? Is it photorealism? I don't think necessarily it's photorealism. My original kind of vision with regards to Nova Lake was never photorealistic. It just had a level of detail, uh, an extreme level of detail um, that could, you know, convey from, you know, eight side view up to a, a grander scale. Really, and Spore isn't doing this, but really a far more extreme version of what Will Wright is doing with Spore. Now, I met with an interesting company uh, in Stockholm in 2000 that had a very realistic island environment with contemporary graphics technology at the time. Uh, and I was very impressed with that. Um, however, nothing oh, really came of that. Tom saw that it was good. <laughs> Tom saw that it was good. Nothing <laughs> really came of that. Just, a, just a, a, a little plug for the Eagle Grid. One of the ideas was, and I'll talk about it at the Great Sun meeting, is, is the idea of separating the, the visualization system from the actual evolution system 
and basically saying if artists like developers work in a semantic grid and then challenge the best visualization people, say like Breve, John Klein, or maybe our team, to to poke into the grid and really visualize what's going on, then we'll have a kind of separation of powers and potentially produce something that's up to Tom or approaching Tom's vision in the future. Yeah. And this is really what came through in the last podcast through Gerald's explicit questioning of what the Evo grid would look like. I think the importance of the Evo grid is a communication protocol as opposed to a physical grid. Can anybody imagine something that you might call a, a brain body API, uh, which is probably two directional? Can anybody sort of pin that down in any way? I'm just curious because you know, to me, the uh, the brain and the body might be might be uh, you know legitimately separated in this context. Well, this is a, this is the, well. This goes to all the emergence of consciousness and and dualism and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and that's what what I'm what I'm saying is basically you know if you can imagine Darwin at home creatures running around on a planet, that's one thing. Uh, deciding where to run is actually a completely different issue. It's kind of orthogonal. Well, here's here's an example from our NASA work of the early 2000s. We were charged with producing a visual interface for a, a, a full simulated Mars base, and the Mars base was actually built in the Canadian Arctic. There was a second one built in Utah. And our, the agents were simulating and actually running the hardware uh, for the robotic systems and the astronauts and their helmets and the base were actually being run by the Brahms agent system. What they didn't have was a, was a geometric representation of the whole thing. And so we actually modeled all of the vehicles in the Boudreaux rover and astronauts and all the tasks and everything. And then for the first time, the Boudreaux rover knew that it was about to come and hit a rock. But because before, all it got was a signal that it was platform was unstable. And this pointed out the fundamental challenge in that you can have an agent system that, that, that works disembodied from a geographical world, and it can run very fast and very efficiently and occasionally sense the world. Maybe that's what Mother Nature's like. But as soon as you introduce the, the, the geometric aspects. You have a lot of overhead, but you have a lot of new information you didn't before because you effectively have a vision system. Yeah. But the challenge for artificial life in the ego grid is to say, if we, if each individual artificial life system is running its own rendering engine and has perfect information about its own world, it can actually be very effective, but it's trapped in a walled garden, and it's trapped to a simulation clock tied to a rendering cycle. So if we can somehow as a community say, we're going to run as just like in the Brahms agents out in the desert. We're going to run as a as a semantic grid, and we're going to we're going to occasionally have a geometrical representation called forth or a viewport. Then we can run a lot faster, and we can do a lot more. We're not tied okay, to the journey of the graphics engine. Bruce, can I ask for a second? What what's going to evolve then exactly? Well, I think the behaviors. So, so for example, the, not not the behaviors of the not the behaviors of the physical body, though, as far as I'm hearing. Well, this is the real question I have in my mind. Um, so, but for you're example, using the word semantic. In other words, semantic, is, semantic. As far as pure pure symbols, 
so for in Brahms, the way it worked, they used Brahms for 10 years uh, without a visual engine. And so they would get an abstract representation of the interior of the habitat or the, the landscape. And as the rovers moved, they had a GPS system. And the astronauts also GPS. So they would ping each other and say, I'm near, I'm near what is called a rock, but I don't know about the rock particularly. Or I'm an astronaut and my, just my suit's just falling apart. Or something like that. And, and the whole thing ran uh, effectively for a decade before we added the 3D front end on it. Um, and I'm thinking that maybe there's a way of abstractly describing the world in semantics without the geom- a, a, a symbolic representation of yeah. geometry. This is exactly... And, and some, another, which, is, which is what, I, what I'm asking, because you're sort of saying, okay, the, the geometry, as far as I'm concerned, is symbolic. Okay, which means that the geometry is uh, definitely, you know, uh, uh, not part of the evolution, because the, the Evo grid is where all the semantic stuff happens, or not? Yeah, and can, can we... Say, for instance, the Evo grid represented uh, a big uh, ocean, and say there was no hard, you could say the simplest case was the only geometry was, is my creature getting close to another creature or an edible plankton or something like that? And so the the physics is really simple. It's all based on coordinates. And so the creatures are then just communicating, I'm here, or am I near anything? And these are these are the kind of uh, these are the kind of things that I have never yet encountered with Darwin at home. It's it's interesting how completely separate that is. Well, you've got what we're isn't it what we're getting at? We have to figure out a way to decouple the logic of the the model from visual data, and then separate further decouple the actual visual data rendering. And that when you do that, we can then distribute and scale the visualization to all sorts of different environments. So whether you're on a thin client with the inherent limitations of a graphics card versus being on you know high-end graphics workstation, if you decouple the logic, the data of the visual, and then the data rendering, then you can start to do what we're talking about, yeah? I, I think so. I think that's the breakthrough, but it's a very hard cognitive challenge uh, to do. Can I just go full circle with regards to this? Because I, I had a bit of an epiphany while you folk were talking. I'm not sure, Justin, in your reading whether you encountered the Rushkov article. But when I was interviewed, well, I wasn't even interviewed by Rushkov. We spent a day together and he wrote the article. But this is, I guess, 99. And this, in fact, perhaps communicates the late vision and perhaps also articulates a real problem. My view then, which somehow I've lost, was the idea that the artificial life components, the things that we are in some regard decoupling from the graphics, were, as Gerald was saying, actually critical in the creation and development of the graphics as well. So as a physical representation, as the graphical representation, as a physical representation, the kind of algorithms that I hope to develop through Noble Ape and that I hope we collectively develop through Biota should not only impact the kind of evolution and description that these organisms have in an abstract sense, but should also dramatically impact the evolution of the graphics as well. And my concern with regards to the decoupling is it doesn't use the immense power that you have through various artificial life algorithms to in fact improve the most striking and alluring part of this whole development, which is the visualization for a majority of the users as described. 
I know, Bruce, you have to probably go to bed or something, and I know, Gerald, you have to start your day in Berlin, and I believe we still have Robert Rice on the line. I'm still awake. So I think we probably should wrap up, uh, bar to say that in two weeks' time we will reconvene this uh, meeting of uh, one-dimensional strangers to try and resolve some of these issues that have been raised tonight. But in the interim, Bruce will be appearing in Boston, Grayson, Boston, on the 3rd of March. And I guess I'm not sure whether Dick Gordon will extend his book or not, Bruce. Do you get a sense of that? Oh, I mean, for more authors? Yeah. I I don't know. He's he's asking me to finish my chapter and the drawing, but I'm, I think that they may be coming up on the deadline that's imposed by the publisher. I'd like to invite the future Biota podcast to really tackle some of the questions that Gerald raised about the challenges, and yourself, about the challenges of the landscape and the geometry being important for evolution, and how do you do both? How do you do how do you do the offline and, and the rendered in unison? Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, I think I'm going to have some some thoughts to contribute uh, to that particular discussion from the uh, you know graphic gamers uh, you know sort of perspective. I want to mull on it for a little bit before getting into it too much. Well, that's the ideal uh, nature of two weeks off. We can all take our ideas away and cultivate them a little further. So anyway, in two weeks' time, we'll probably do... I'm not sure where Bruce will be. I think you'll probably be back in California in two weeks' time, Bruce, won't you? I'll be in... I will be, gosh, in two weeks, somewhere on the East Coast, drifting around. Okay, so Saturday morning, my time may work out best for you. However, the place to look for more information about when the next podcast is going to be, biota.org slash podcast. So thank you all very much for participating this evening.